Hi, welcome to the episode. In this podcast, we will cover diabetic ketoacidosis in pregnancy. Diabetic ketoacidosis is a life-threatening acute metabolic state due to insulin deficiency. Hence, all patients with diabetes in pregnancy, including gestational diabetics, should be monitored for DKA occurrence. Low levels of insulin cause increased gluconeogenesis while decreasing glucose uptake and utilization. Increased levels of counter-regulatory hormones also accelerate the development of ketoacidosis by increasing gluconeogenesis, glycogenolysis, ketogenesis, and insulin resistance. Insulin deficiency also leads to high anion gap metabolic acidosis. Hyperglycemia and hyperosmolarity in patients with DKA produce the characteristic osmotic diuresis causing intravascular volume depletion. If not corrected by intravenous fluids and insulin, DKA can rapidly progress to a state of poor tissue perfusion, diminished cardiac and renal function, multi-system failure, and death. All right, now as an OBGYN, I know you're thinking DKA is just not something we see, and that's for internists. But that's not true, especially in pregnancy. Remember that the diabetic pregnant patient is more susceptible to go into diabetic ketoacidosis than the non-pregnant individual. There are certain physiological changes that actually can predispose a pregnant woman with diabetes to diabetic ketoacidosis. These can include respiratory alkalosis. Remember that pregnancy is a state of respiratory alkalosis associated with a compensatory drop in bicarb levels. Now, this impairs the buffering capacity and renders the pregnant woman more prone to develop DKA. Also, there's relative insulin resistance in pregnancy. This, along with enhanced lipolysis and elevated free fatty acids, form the basis for diabetic ketoacidosis. Now, there's also the usual hormonal changes in pregnancy, including increased levels of human placental lactogen, progesterone, and cortisol, all which impair maternal insulin sensitivity. DKP, or diabetic ketoacidosis of pregnancy, is more commonly observed along with type 1 diabetes, but can also be seen in type 2 diabetes and even in patients with gestational diabetes. All right, let's talk about the fetal effects of DKA next. The exact mechanism by which maternal diabetic ketoacidosis affects the fetus is unknown, but ketoacids as well as glucose readily cross the placenta. Now, whether it is this maternal acidosis, the hyperglycemia, severe volume depletion, or the electrolyte imbalances that has the most detrimental effect on the fetus is unclear. Cardiotocography done during diabetic ketoacidosis, remember that's the fancy word for fetal monitoring, has shown absence of baseline fetal heart rate variability, persistent late D cells, and non reassuring biophysical profile all suggesting fetal distress. The high mortality rate associated with diabetic ketoacidosis certainly suggests a hostile intrauterine environment. 
Now, an association has been reported between elevated keto acids during pregnancy and lower IQ scores as well as decreased mental development during the second year of life. Furthermore, an association has also been reported between ketonuria detected during prenatal visits and adverse neurobehavioral outcomes even in non-diabetic pregnancies. So there seems to be something there with prolonged ketosis in pregnancy. The fetal brain is particularly susceptible to increased levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate and lactate concentrations, which decrease glucose uptake by the fetal brain. Also, these substances are also known to accumulate in the basal ganglia of children during episodes of diabetic ketoacidosis. The acidotic environment that develops has been associated with poor myelination and poor cortical connectivity, as well as aberrations in the hippocampal neurons. All right, now we have to clarify something that we just covered. Although the fetal heart rate tracing can look ominous during the acute phase of DKA, you have to resist the urge to move to an immediate C-section. Remember, first of all, that the patient is not yet clinically stable. And second of all, the fetal heart rate tracing almost always improves after the acidosis resolves. We'll cover this a little bit further down in the podcast. But first, what is the diagnostic criterion for DKA in pregnancy? Well, remember that acidosis is the hallmark of diabetic ketoacidosis with or without pregnancy. In pregnancy, a serum bicarb level is usually less than 15 microequivalents per liter for a diagnosis of acidosis. Hyperglycemia is almost always present, of course, with a glycemic level over 300, although it can occur in pregnancy with levels as low as 250. An anion gap metabolic acidosis can be seen, and ketosis, either in the serum or urine, is virtually always seen in cases of diabetic ketoacidosis. Now remember that an anion gap is present because the acidosis is caused by an increase in unmeasured anions like ketoacids and lactate. Remember that in acute diabetic ketoacidosis, the ketone body ratio rises from a normal of 1 to 1 to as high as 10 to 1. This ketone body ratio has to do with the increase in 3-beta-hydroxybutyrate compared to acetoacetate. So that's your clinical pearl. The plasma glucose level, again, is usually higher than 300, but it's important to remember that lower levels are not uncommon during pregnancy. Falsely normal or elevated potassium levels might be present. However, it is likely that the total potassium is actually decreased and the patient is dehydrated and hypokalemic. Blood urea nitrogen and creatinine levels may be elevated as a result of renal dysfunction. All right, now that we've covered the diagnostics, let's get into DKA management. Diabetic ketoacidosis in pregnancy is an obstetric and medical emergency and requires prompt recognition and aggressive treatment. Initial fluid replacement must be aggressive. It's first accomplished with normal saline. Now remember, it's imperative to early on in the disease management to establish two large bore IVs. In patients with diabetic ketoacidosis, the fluid deficit is 100 mLs per kilo body weight. That's equivalent to about 6 to 10 liters based on maternal weight. 
immediate effects of this aggressive hydration are hemodilution and an increase in tissue perfusion, resulting in a decrease in glucose and potassium levels. Now, it's important to replace 75% of the fluid deficit during the first 24 hours, and treatment of the total volume deficit can be done in 48 hours. Now, here's your clinical pearl. Isotonic normal saline is administered at a rate of 1 to 2 liters per hour for the first 1 to 2 hours. Now, once this is completed, normal saline is administered at a rate of 250 to 500 mLs per hour and continued until glucose values are less than 250 milligrams per deciliter. Once this level of glucose is reached, administration of an IV solution with 5% dextrose can be started. Correction of hyperglycemia is best achieved with IV short-acting insulin. Regular insulin is administered as an 8 to 10 unit bolus followed by a 0.1 unit per kilo per hour IV maintenance dose until the serum bicarb and anion gap normalize and the serum ketones become absent. Now, because correction of acidemia takes much longer than correction of hyperglycemia, insulin should be continued at a basal infusion of 1 to 2 units per hour after normoglycemia is established and can be discontinued only after the first subcutaneous dose of regular insulin is readministered. Remember that in patients with DKA, total body potassium is typically low. In diabetic ketoacidosis, the total potassium deficit is typically 5 to 10 milliequivalents per liter. During the administration of insulin, volume replacement, and correction of acidosis, potassium shifts from the extracellular to the intracellular space. To prevent fetal arrhythmias, it's important to keep serum potassium level between 4 and 5 milliequivalents per liter. Now, this is best accomplished by IV administration of potassium chloride. Adequate urine output, remember, must always be maintained. Remember, no P, no K. Phosphate replacement is not usually required unless levels fall under 1 mg per deciliter, cardiac dysfunction can occur, or signs of obtundation are noted. So remember, phosphorus replacement is needed if the levels are below 1, there's cardiac dysfunction, or signs of obtundation are noted. Phosphorus may be replaced in conjunction with potassium by administering 10 to 20 milliequivalents per liter of potassium phosphate for each 10 to 20 milliequivalents per liter of potassium chloride. The need for replacement of other electrolytes, including bicarb, magnesium, and calcium, is debatable. Administration of bicarb may be associated with profound alkalosis or worsening acidemia secondary to increased partial pressure of carbon dioxide, leading in turn to impaired fetal oxygen transfer. Now, some authors do recommend bicarb administration during severe acidemia, that's a pH less than 7, or in patients complicated by cardiac dysfunction, sepsis, or shock. However, further research is still required to assess the potential risks and benefits of this kind of therapy. The decision to continue pregnancy or proceed with delivery in the setting of diabetic ketoacidosis can be challenging, but it must be based on fetal gestational age, maternal status, 
the fetal status and the response to treatment. The natural inclination is to proceed with emergency cesarean for concerning fetal status before stabilizing the maternal condition. But remember that diabetic ketoacidosis per se is not an indication for emergent delivery because a premature decision to proceed with C-section increases the risk of maternal mortality and morbidity. Also, it may lead to unnecessarily having a preterm delivery of a hypoxic and an acidotic neonate. It's imperative to stabilize the maternal condition first because this will often improve the fetal status and potentially avoid the previously mentioned complications. Now, I know we've already said that, but that had to be said again because that's a big clinical pearl. If fetal status does not improve or if the maternal condition continues to deteriorate despite initial aggressive therapy, then delivery is warranted, but not after first attempts to correct the acidosis. Now, on the other hand, if maternal condition stabilizes and the fetal abnormalities resolve, pregnancy can be continued and most often patients will be discharged home safely. Now, once hemodynamic statuses and metabolic abnormalities have been addressed, it's important to evaluate for and treat any potential precipitating factor, like infection. Infection are major predisposing factors for diabetic ketoacidosis, and so evaluation for infection should be done even in the absence of fever. The source of infection can be the urinary tract, upper airway, pneumonia, the gallbladder, an ear, even a tooth abscess. Once identified, the source of infection should be treated with the appropriate antibiotics, surgery, or antibiotics and surgery based on the clinician diagnosed. In addition, if beta agonists were being used, they should be discontinued immediately. All right, as we wrap up the podcast, what do we know about the prognosis of these patients? Well, the vast majority of patients with diabetic ketoacidosis in pregnancy will recover with no sequelae. Delayed recognition and inappropriate management carry elevated maternal and fetal morbidity, however. Most complications result from inadequate fluid management and premature discontinuation of insulin. In addition, failure to properly recognize and correct any precipitating factor like infection is associated with the worst prognosis and, of course, a higher risk of recurrence. All right, that wraps up a review of diabetic ketoacidosis in pregnancy. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.